This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Daniel 1? Daniel chapter 1. You're going to need the Bible in front of you today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you have a smartphone or a tablet, you can use uh, BibleGateway.com is a good place to go or the YouVersion app, Y-O-U version app. You're going to want to have this uh, in front of you as we walk through this this chapter today. Um, Several years ago, I was um, talking with a young, engaged couple and uh, this was at a time when I over- oversaw the, the ministry and, and due to the nature of the church, there were a lot of uh, premarital counseling uh, sessions that I did. And, uh, you know, you, you get to a point where you just, <laughs> depends on the day, but you're just mentally kind of not there and you're just walking through your talking points with, with uh, the, the couple that might be in front of you. It's a stump speech. It's the elevator pitch thing. And and uh, on this particular day, the topic of sex had come up, and then it launched me into talking about how this is a very good gift that's meant to be enjoyed within the, the context of a covenant marriage between one man, one woman. I went into talking about the fact that sex is a covenant renewal ceremony, and I got done with this. I, I guess I wasn't looking at this couple when I was talking through these things, and, and I ended, and I looked at them, and they had this look on their faces as if I was wearing 1970s disco clothes. The look on their face was, was, was just like Will Smith's look on his face on Independence Day when the alien spaceship came to town. And, and it was at that point in time, I knew that, that, that Christian's view of sex is strange. I knew that already, but, but it was in that particular conversation, I thought to myself, you know what? <laughs> Christians are exiles. Flat out, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are resident aliens in this world. And that was the moment it dawned on me, we're going to have to think through this. We're going to have to work this out because this is not going to be an easy way to navigate life. So how are we supposed to live in a world that is increasingly finding our beliefs and our behaviors to be nonsensical? We're supposed to retract from society and build homogenous communities like the Amish? Are we supposed to uh, storm the gates of hell, engage the culture wars, and take back territory that's been lost to our enemy? Are we supposed to modify the values that we have, the practices we have, in order to make them a little more palatable to our culture? These are important questions, and frankly, there are no easy answers to this. This is one of the most difficult, I think, Uh, terrains that we've been in as Christians for some time. But we're going to barely scratch the surface on this topic as we look at Daniel 1 today. So make sure you've got your Bibles open. We're going to work through it. I'm going to offer some some commentary on section by section, and then at the end we'll we'll look through some strategies for cultural engagement based on this chapter. Daniel 1, starting in verse 1, "...in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah..." Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia 
and put in the treasure house of his God. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor John took us through 2 Chronicles 36, which, which details a bit more what is only mentioned briefly here, and that's the fall of Jerusalem. But you'll notice the way in which in both texts, actually, the way in which it's described, credit is not chiefly given to Babylon's military and political strategy. That's not the way the story reads. Look at it. It was the Lord who delivered Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. If you have a practice of marking up your Bible, if you don't, I encourage you to to do that. Underline the first four words of verse two. And the Lord delivered. And the Lord delivered. This is gonna become an important theme, not just in this chapter, but actually in the book as a whole. Verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Frankly, I didn't know such a man existed until I read this text. (laughs) These guys are impeccable. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's taken Judah's finest young men, elite men, probably still teenagers, and he begins a training program with them. And the objective is straightforward, influence the influencers. Influence the influencers. If he can get members of Judah's elite to become enamored with Babylonian ways and customs, he can streamline the empire building process. This was common practice in the ancient world. You press the elite of subdued nations into the service of the conquering nation and then leverage them for the purpose of assimilating the general population. So for an empire on the rise, the strategy is logical. Last part of verse four, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So Daniel and his three friends enter the Academy of Babylonian Studies, where they learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The language of the ancient Chaldeans or the Babylonians was Akkadian. That's harmless enough, but it was for the purpose of learning the literature of Babylon. And that's not so much the New York Times bestseller list as it is the sacred texts of Babylonian religion, and that's where it gets dicey. So clearly, because of this, Daniel and his friends would have been trained in the arts of divination through means such as interpreting terrestrial and celestial phenomena, astrology, and the examination of sheep livers. I kid you not, the examination of sheep livers. So the art of divination is well attested. Uh, in Babylon. It often meant learning to read omens through which the gods would reveal their wills and their intentions and their decisions for the people. Some modern day scholars have drawn some connections between what Daniel and his friends study and the occult. So he's immersed in this. He's immersed in the study of these things for three years. And he not only takes the course, but he graduates summa cum laude. That's interesting. Verse six, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. A name change probably seems benign to us modern Westerners, but in the ancient Near East, oftentimes one's name contained reference to one's deity. And it drew out the person's identity. So Daniel, which means God is my judge, became Belteshazzar, which means may a God protect the king. 
a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. And this kind of thing was done to each of Daniel's friends. So their names are changed from having links to the God of the Bible to having links to some kind of Babylonian God. So what's being attempted here is not merely a change in label, but a change in identity, a change of allegiance. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. What's fascinating about this verse is that up until this point, there's no record of Daniel or his friends uh, choosing to resist any of the things that have happened to them. Verse 8 marks the, the first point of resistance. So uh, the obvious question is why has Daniel chosen diet? to be the moral and theological line that he will not cross. He doesn't protest his name change. He doesn't fight being enrolled in the Babylonian Academy to learn astrology and divination. But he draws in the line, in a line in the sand over food. Why is that? Well, as soon as Daniel mentions the word defile, you might think of the Jewish dietary laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In other words, Daniel wants to keep kosher but if that's the case, why does Daniel abstain from wine? The Old Testament law did not forbid abstention from wine. Additionally, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Amos all prophesied that keeping kosher in exile would be an impossibility. So if it's not a kosher issue, maybe Daniel is avoiding food sacrificed to idols. But, but numerous scholars have pointed out it was likely all Babylonian food was sacrificed to some idol, some other god. Babylon was a polytheistic culture. There were gods that governed every corner of their world, every, every part of nature. And so it's likely every bit of the food that they ate would have been sacrificed to some, some other god, some other idol. Additionally, that kind of imports a New Testament idea into this story. So what else could it be? Well, the concept of defilement isn't used exclusively of dietary laws. It's also used of sexual immorality and idolatry. So jumping into bed with someone other than one's spouse was an act of defilement. Idolatry was an act of defiling oneself. In the Old Testament, succumbing to idolatry is portrayed as assimilating to aspects of the culture around. And I think that's what's in view here. And the significance of this is noteworthy, and we'll look at that momentarily. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Just quickly note, why was Daniel shown favor? Why was he shown compassion? Because God caused the official to show him favor and compassion. That's, again, a theme throughout the book. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So the bottom line here is Daniel and his friends have ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Again, note, who was it that gave Daniel and his friends the ability to learn with incredible aptitude? It was God. 
It was God. And what was the content of their learning? The language and the literature of an evil regime. Verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel's portrayed positively throughout the book that bears his name. And so we ought to pay close attention to how he lived as a resident alien, as an exile, as a sojourner. And we can learn from him and we can pick up some things that may help us to chart our own course. However, I do want to say that the Daniel way, I don't think, is meant to be a one-size-fits-all template. Because we are talking about some very gray areas of life. So instead of looking at this as a fixed template that everybody's supposed to fit into, think of it instead as strategies for cultural engagement. Strategies for cultural engagement. We're going to look at three of them. First, don't fight every battle. Second, maintain your distinctiveness. And third, remember God's in control of who's in control. Don't fight every battle, maintain your distinctiveness, and remember God's in control of who's in control. First, don't fight every battle. It's so interesting to me that that Daniel doesn't draw a line in the sand with his name change. It's very interesting. Having his name changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar, you know what that would be like? It's tough for us to relate to this because we think of names more as labels, representations, than, than getting at the identity of someone. H- having Daniel's name from ch- changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar would be like taking a Christian named Christian and changing their name to Mohammed. That would be closer to what's happening here. But he doesn't protest that. He doesn't bat an eyelash at it, in fact. He says, call me what you want. Additionally, Daniel didn't protest having to learn a foreign language in order to learn the sacred texts of a religion he knew to be wrong on so many levels. And not only did he not protest having to learn astrology, not only did he not protest having to learn divination, he did his best at it. He was very good. Now look, God forbids us to practice astrology, but the scriptures don't say anything about what we can study. So Daniel studied it. Some things are not worth dying for. You don't need to fight every battle that comes your way. Now, I look at Daniel, I try to imagine what this would have been like. I I think Daniel would have been criticized by many within the Christian community. I think he'd been heavily criticized by many within the Christian community. He'd been criticized for being passive, lacking courage, But what's interesting about his story is that what looks like passivity is actually wisdom. For some today, you probably know them, waiting is never an option. Compromise is a dirty word. Everything is equally important. There are no nuances. Everything is black and white. Immediate consequences are the only consequences that matter. And this, this, this really is a lack of perspective. 
Sometimes what looks like passivity is really wisdom. Daniel's response is um, very different from the typical pattern of resistance and withdrawal advocated by many today. And this might be one good thing to, to just reflect on. Um, I, know, I know there are a lot of workplace training seminars out there that teach tolerance about this and that. And I know a lot of Christians choose to opt out of that as if taking the course is the same as endorsing the course. But would Daniel say that? Would Daniel say taking the course is the same as endorsing the course? I don't think the story of Daniel reads that way. So it's interesting to note, as the story unfolds, that Daniel graduating summa cum laude in uh, Babylonian studies, in, in studying divination, in astrology, what it did for him was create a platform. And he utilized this. He used this platform to later debunk some of the things that had garnered Nebuchadnezzar's trust. Some things aren't worth dying for. You don't need to fight every battle. Time and again, he could have thrown a hissy fit over his name change. He could have protested his forced re-education in astrology and divination. We don't see any of that in the story. He could have used the phrase, I'm offended, countless times, but not once. I think Daniel understood something. He understood that godless people live godless lives. And he didn't have expectations other than that. Larry Osborne tells a story that illustrates this. He writes, as a college and graduate student, I worked night crew at a grocery store. It was an eye-opening experience. I thought I heard it all in the locker room, but the crass language and sexually charged conversations that took place each night in the aisles were far more deviant than anything I'd ever experienced before. As a new Christian, I made the mistake of trying to shut it down. I told some of my coworkers that I was offended when they used the name of Jesus as a curse word. I let them know I was troubled by the constant degradation of women as sexual objects, and I despised the foul jokes and language that everyone else thought were funny. I was sure God was pleased with me for taking a stand. I was proud of my godly influence. But in reality, I had no godly influence. All I did was ostracize myself. Some of them cleaned up their act around me, but they mocked me behind my back. I became preacher boy and a few other names I won't put into print. Taking a stand did nothing to draw them to Jesus. It simply confirmed their negative stereotype of Christians. They put me in their Jesus freak box and they sealed the lid. We never had another serious conversation about life or Jesus again. My problem was a lack of perspective. I thought their biggest issue was their garbage mouth and godless lifestyle. But their biggest issue was not knowing Jesus. By trying to enforce my Christian values and sensibilities upon them, I lost the chance to introduce them to the only one who could clean up their act and forgive their sins. As exiles, it's going to take tremendous wisdom to know which battles to fight and which ones not to fight. But one strategy to remember, Christian, in our cultural engagement, not everything is worth dying for. Not everything is a battle you need to fight. Second, Maintain your distinctiveness. So how do we live in a, in a distinctively Christian manner if not every battle is worth fighting for? In verse five, we're told the king assigned Daniel and his friends food and wine from his table. 
This is incredible. This is the taste of the high life right here. None of your mass-produced college food here. None. No running out to McDonald's in between classes to get a quick bite. That's not what's happening. There's linen tablecloths in this scene. There's silver cutlery in this scene. And as the waiters attend to them, they're being told that what you're eating is exactly what the king ate today. You can be assured this was the best food at the equivalent of the best restaurant in town. And it was all part of the king's strategy. Nebuchadnezzar is brilliantly deviant. He is simply smothering Daniel and his friends with an enticing assimilation program because he knows if I can get them to have a taste of the high life, they will not settle for anything less. And so every mealtime for Daniel and his friends was a message to them. The message was, you want to be here. The king's palace is the place to be. Taste the fruits of what success can offer you. Get used to it. Enjoy it. Go for it. Put yourself on the fast track. Pour yourself into it. But Daniel decided he would not eat from the king's table. He knew that if he embraced everything that was put before him, it wouldn't be long before his soul was consumed by the opportunities that were around him. He knew that if he didn't exercise some restraint, the pressure of the culture would suck him in and the king's tactic would be successful. He is utterly realistic about the continual erosive effect of throwing yourself into embracing everything that this world offers. And he reckoned that he needed some strategy of voluntarily, voluntarily exercising some restraint so that every day there was a reminder to himself that he was not of this world, but he belonged to God. And so Daniel determined not to eat at the best restaurant in town. Instead, he ate a brown bag lunch of vegetables. There's tremendous wisdom here. Daniel is a bright boy with penetration in his thinking. A lot of us, I think, go through life and the only question that we ask is, is it right or is it wrong? If there's nothing wrong with it, then go for it. But Daniel exemplifies a kind of nuanced thinking. He says, it may not be wrong, but where does this lead? It may not be wrong, but where does this lead? Over time, if I do this, it's not wrong, but if I do this over time, will I become some compromised believer? And that's full of practical significance for us today. What movies should you watch? What parties should you go to or not go to? What company should you keep? On what should you spend your money? How big a mortgage should you take? What opportunity should you say yes to? What should you say no to? We tend to be too black and white and we miss that over a period of time there's an eroding effect, an eroding power that comes from the secularizing pressure of the world. So Danny perceived that the need was to find some way to exercise some restraint. He perceived there to be a need to remind himself that he was a citizen of another kingdom and destined for another world. And so the question I think we ought to reflect on is a very simple one. How am I maintaining Christian distinctiveness in the gray areas of life? How am I maintaining Christian distinctiveness, not in the black and white, 
issues of life, but the gray areas of life. Notice one more thing. There's, there's a kind of mutual influence Daniel and his friends exert on one another. They resolve collectively not to eat from the king's table, and then they form a kind of small group. And they encourage one another in distinctive Christian living. It's very interesting. They're a small group now. They're looking each other in the eye and they're saying, are we living distinctively in the gray areas of life? And they chew on that together. They bounce it around. So if you regularly rub shoulders with with other Christians, the same group of Christians where you can have these kinds of conversations, throw that one in the mix. How can you encourage one another in distinctive Christian living in the gray areas of life? So how do we live as exiles? How do we live as resident aliens? Don't fight every battle. Maintain your distinctiveness. And third, remember God's in control of who's in control. As we went through the story, did you notice how active God is and what he's doing? I tried to draw your attention to that. Uh, it is God who delivers Judah in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who caused the, the, the Babylonian officials to show Daniel favor. It's God who gave Daniel and his friends incredible aptitude for learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. This is a theme throughout the book. In all that transpires in, in this book, Daniel sees God's hand in everything. It's the foundation upon which his hope and his humility and his wisdom rested. Imagine this for a minute. Imagine the United States had lost one of the Gulf Wars and every one of us has been transported to Baghdad. That's our new home. That's what's happened to him. I don't know about you. I would be in despair over that. It would be rough. But you don't see that in Daniel at all throughout the book. He possesses a remarkable optimism, incredible hope. How do you explain that? Well, it, the only way it makes sense, the only way it makes sense that Danny would respond to this kind of catastrophe the way he does is if he is seeing the sovereignty of God in everything that's happening around him. Granted, on the, on the level of human observation, uh, it was Nebuchadnezzar's military prowess that wins the day. That's true on the level of human observation. It's Nebuchadnezzar's prowess that wins the day. But there is an unseen power vigorously at work. And the scriptures take us behind the scenes. They pull the curtain back. They let us see what's happening behind the scenes. And we see God's sovereign power still controlling everything. And that was the lens through which Daniel saw everything that happened. And it's for reasons like that that increasingly I'm becoming convicted that, that fear and panic are what distrust in the sovereignty of God feel like. Distrust in the sovereignty of God feels like fear and panic. When fear and panic are, are, are what's pressing upon us, that's when accidents to us are a real thing. Fear and panic are what we feel when God's plans are thwarted. Now, we never say this out loud, but our feelings betray what we really believe to be true. The only way to live with hope, the only way to live with poise and optimism as exiles, as resident aliens, is to remember that God's in control of who's in control. Nowhere do we get a clearer picture of this than in the cross of Christ. 
Jesus was the ultimate exile. He was the ultimate exile. His beliefs, Jesus' beliefs and his behavior were so exceedingly foreign to the world he inhabited, they got him tortured and killed. He's the ultimate exile. But God's in control of who's in control. Look at it, Acts chapter 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Since the, con- the context of this is the early church is praying, they're in a corporate prayer gathering. And they are reminding themselves through prayer all that had transpired. And in their prayer, they are saying that what what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel and that city, what they did to Jesus, they did because God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So even in the injustice of the cross, God's in control of who's in control. In the injustice of the cross, God was writing the greatest love story of all time. Think about what it accomplished for you. Even in the injustice of the cross, God is writing a love story. And you're a character in that story. So the next time you feel the acute discomfort of living in a world that feels hostile to your beliefs as a Christian, remember, a loving God is in control of who's in control. There's a little known fairy tale about a wicked witch who lived in a remote cottage in the deep forest. And when travelers came through looking for lodging, she offered them a meal and a bed. It was the most comfortable bed any of these travelers had ever slept in, but it was a bed full of deep magic. If you were asleep in the bed when the sun came up the next morning, you turned to stone and you became a figure in the witch's statue collection, trapped until the end of time. The witch forced a young girl to serve her and though she had no power to resist the witch, the girl became more and more filled with pity for her victims. And one day a young man came looking for food and shelter and was taken in, but the servant girl could not bear to see him turn to stone. So while he was sleeping, she threw sticks and stones and thistles into his bed. Every time he turned, he felt a new painful object under him. And even though he'd throw each one out, there was always the next one that she would throw into his bed and it would dig into his flesh. He had a horrible night's sleep. He woke up long before dawn the next morning, And as he was walking out the door, he berated this girl, saying, how could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? And he cried, and he went on his way. And then she said under her breath, ah, the misery you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery a comfortable sleep would have brought upon you. Those were my sticks and stones of love. As exiles, I want to encourage you to have a bigger perspective. The Babylonians will come. They will. But they are the sticks and stones in our beds 
put there by a loving God. All he's wanting us to do is to remind us that we are exiles. We are resident aliens. And our citizenship is not here. But our citizenship is with him in heaven. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, fear and panic have no place in the Christian life. They are expressions of deep-seated distrust in your management of the cosmos. And in the end, an insult to your sovereignty and love. Anchor our hearts in texts like this that remind us you are in control of those who are in control. There are no accidents. Your plans are never thwarted. The sticks, stones, and thistles you throw in our beds are there to wake us up to threats far greater than themselves. God, I pray that you would grant us this perspective. Remind us that we are exiles, we are sojourners, we are refugees, we are resident aliens passing through on our way to where our eternal citizenship lies. So God, I pray that as life gets uncomfortable, we see the Babylonians pressing in around us. But we would remember you are the author of this story and you have revealed yourself time and again to be a good God who's worthy of our trust. We respond to that now. In Christ's name, amen.